Welcome back to the Salty Talks podcast, a show all about sustainable aquaculture in Maine. On this episode, I talked with Chris Burtis, owner of Ferta Farms in Brunswick, Maine. I met him at a shucking gig a few months ago in Boston, and I immediately knew that I had to bring him on the show. He's got this great, vibrant energy and just has tons of fun anecdotal stories from his years of farming. Hi, I'm Chris Burtis, one of the owners of Ferta Farms small-scaling oyster farm here on the New Meadows River in Brunswick. And um, yeah, that's me. (laughs) Before diving into the bulk of the episode, I did want Chris to quickly highlight some aspects of his farm for you all. We get our seed from, um, lately it's been Muscongas Bay Aquaculture. Uh, We have gotten seed from Mook Seed Farm before. We're growing um, Chrysostria virginica, the eastern oyster, the American oyster. We have two varieties. One is called the Bombazine, and the other one's called the Foster Point. And we kind of grow not up and down the whole river, but we grow kind of spread out. Right now we have like 10 or 12 LPAs, and we're just trying different methods of grow out. We do mostly surface grow out. We do have some bottom grow out in cages. and condos. Chris and his son Max run the farm together and they have been since 2018. They're this really fun dynamic duo and it's just so clear how well they work together from the way that Chris talks about them. My son Max is my um, co-owner, co-worker, co-business partner. Back when he was in high school they were uh, digging clams with their student shellfish license I think they probably got those licenses when they were in eighth grade or something and they could go dig clams locally and actually sell the clams and make money. Um, And then in high school, um, Max and a couple of his buddies were looking to, you know, work 24-7. So they dig during the low tide and then they had this idea that they would farm oysters at high tide and never sleep. And, um, but yeah, they were, they were trying to get a, oyster farm going and they kind of talked me into it and the other boys have since moved on and it's just truly a family business now. My other son, um, I, he worked with us tirelessly getting the farm going and he's off in college now. But yeah, Max is definitely, um, uh, my two sons, Max and Isaac. Isaac's the younger one that um, is off in college right now, but Max, the older one, is um, the business partner, and it's great because he's really good with numbers. He, he's a mechanical engineer. He's he's great with all that stuff that I hate to do. <laughs> no, Max is great. We can really work well together. He trusts me. I trust him. Yeah, it's it's kind of an evolution. Yeah. It's not always just the two of them, though. With grants and other resources, they've been able to find helping hands along the way. In the past couple of years, we've uh, started to learn how to take on apprentices or interns. And Max has been really good about learning how to get grants or go through certain systems that, that are in place that support aquaculture and people getting into the business. So, so like last year, we had a couple interns that we had going through the summer, which was great to test that out. And then this year, we're actually going to have like four employees, one apprentice and two interns. And I think one kid from Bowdoin that's kind of like paid for. 
Throughout my conversation with Chris, it was very clear to me that being on the water is where he belongs. It's something that's deeply rooted in who he is as a person. Uh, I just feel kind of at home there to, when I'm on the water. I, I just feel really, um, yeah, it just feels like a slot or a groove that I'm supposed to be in. You know, I spent my whole life kind of working on the water, you know, off and on. It's just, I get out there and it's like, it's, a, it's an element that's very familiar to me. It's not just being on the water that brings Chris joy. Growing food in a sustainably done way for people that also has positive impacts to the surrounding environment and community is something Chris also loves as well. It feels great. I think, you know, when we start out with the seed and it's really small, we're just kind of wrangling those animals in a way that's like trying not to kill them. But it's weird. It, it, like if you go from that end of the spectrum to the other end, it's, it's totally different, um, you know, the the closer they are to market, the, the just it's totally different the way you handle. You know, they call it husbandry, and you're really just um, taking these animals from you know the size of a grain of sand, you know, all the way to you know something that fits in the palm of your hand that's like just packed with protein and nutrients, and and it's and it's filtered the water, the you know its entire life and made the water better, and then you go to eat it and it's it's um this flavorful burst of like the ocean and you know, wherever it's growing and these complex flavors and i mean i feel like i'm not that great at you know the whole sommelier thing but there are those sommeliers out there that are like wow yeah this tastes like this and that and blah 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 and it's really cool it's a lot of fun it, it's more than just food it's it's like this new buzz that's going on Chris isn't the only one who loves oysters. His furry friend and fellow boat captain joined us for this interview and is also an oyster enthusiast. Oh yeah, we have a, we have a dog in the background snoring. That's yeah. Bosun. When I first met Chris, he had tons of stories to tell about his day-to-day -day as an oyster farmer. But what stuck out the most to me was how many of his stories involved community engagement, showing just how important social license is to him. Working on the water in many different aspects, I think that this is something that is perhaps inherently just part of his nature, but also something that he seems to be frequently thinking about. Yeah, well, I think it's funny. Um, if I hit the rewind button a little bit and go back to my, you know, sailing days or working on the water, um, I, I, I did work on um, oystering on a skipjack on, you know, um, dredging for oysters under sail when I was in my 20s on the Chesapeake Bay. And really just being on the water, working on the water. You know, we moved to this place that's on the water and, you know, we had a couple of kayaks and I had a sailboat, but I didn't launch the sailboat right away. And um, then we had an aluminum boat with a little motor on it and we would go out and tool around a little bit. But, you know, just being on the water on the coast of Maine which is an unforgiving, you know, rocky place to operate any vessel um, with the currents and tides as they are. Um, I think it demands just in and of itself a, a huge degree of respect. But there's these people out there that have been working these waters for generations and generations. And, and those lobster trap buoys are the same color and they've been that color. There's clam diggers and, and wormers that are flipping the mud over and getting, you know, product from, from the flats 
in the intertidal zones. So there's these people that are, are using the ocean and the sea for, for their livelihood. And to go out there and think that you can do anything that you want is just a huge misstep. I, I, I kind of think about those people that are out there doing their work and I, I need to tread lightly if I'm going to go out there, even if it's running around in a kayak. You know, when we first decided to do an LPA, there was one landowner in a local town where we knew the oyster food was really good off this shore. And we looked on the tax map and, you know, found the phone number of this individual. And I, I said to Max, you know, you want me to call him or you want to call him? I mean, this is not, you don't have to do this, but... We just thought, you know, if we're going to put a line over there, it's going to be outside of 300 feet. We could do it whether we want to or not. But um, that's the distance between the, the land as a riparian landowner. Then if you're inside of 300 feet, you would have to notify the landowner. Um, we could have put a line outside of 300 feet and been fine. But we, we figured we'd just call this landowner. And the person was like, we would vehemently oppose. Actually, I was going to call. And I was like, Max, do you want to call it? And he's like, sure, I'll call. And the kid's 18 years old, and he calls this guy up, and he says, hi, we were thinking about, you know, putting a, an oyster farm over there. And the guy just, like, ripped into my son. And I was like, oh, gosh. I was like I'm just going to go grow somewhere else. And so, I mean, right out of the gates, you know, and that's just a landowner. I mean, we went out in boats, and we scouted around, um, and we looked at, like, where can we grow, you know, that's subtitle, you know, where can... We stay out of the guys who are fishing lobster traps. You know, we can stay out of their way. Uh, and we tried to figure it out. And I think we've been pretty successful with that. Um, I have a sailboat, it's 22 feet long. I live on the water. There's a place where I wanted to put a mooring where I could see the sailboat before I even went through what you're supposed to do for applying for a sailboat mooring. I went out when there was this one guy who goes out there and fishes his traps. Um, and I asked him, I said, you know, hey, do you think it would be a problem for me to put a sailboat mooring there? You know, and he was like, I don't care what you do. And I was like, okay, thanks, just check in, you know. And then there's another guy um, who, who fishes up in there, and I asked him, and he's like, no, you're totally fine, just keep it over that way. I mean, these are the things I think that for those of, those of us that want to do aquaculture need to do. We need to tread lightly around the people who are already there and that have been there for generations. And there is plenty of water out there. And I think we can all, you know, utilize it and, and make livelihoods on it and respect each other. Because, you know, this guy or that guy out there, you know, if something happens, I'm, I might be the person to pull him out of the water. And I think it, it can be, um, I think we can do this. Chris seemed to have many stories with different people in the community. So I was curious to know if he's kept up with these relationships and what they may have led to. Well, like just, you know, take for instance, the, the two fishermen that are up in where our sailboat mooring is. You know, I know the one guy, Wayne, he's, he's um, brother or something of another friend of mine. And then this other guy, Clarence, is um, Clarence Coffin. And, you know, the last name Coffin is, is, a, is a, a name that's been around. Um, he's out there. Um, fishing his traps all the time you know we wave he waves he's he's come by our work float and tied up you know briefly and chatted with us during the day when he's 
heading back to grab more traps or something. Uh, he keeps his boat and his lobsters at the dock where we land our oysters. One day I was out there with um, one of my earlier business partners, Sam, and, and, and we found like a pogey that got stuck in one of the oyster cages. And, um, and Sam's like, there's a fish. I'm like, oh, grab it. And it was, I think it was dead. I'm like, no, save it, save it. Um, let's go give it to Clarence. He's going by, let's, let's cut him off. And so we go over and we pulled up and we gave him a, a fish. You know, it's like a, a dead pogey, you know, it's perfect lobster bait, you know, and he just threw it in his, his bait bucket with the rest of his bait. I, I mean, further up river, we have this one line, it's off of Howard Point. You know, it's it's on the outside of the channel, but really close to the deep, but not on the, on the shoal, you know, like a super low tide drainer. Sometimes the north cages might sit on the bottom for a little bit, but um, but the line is, um, we had just put it there and I was up there doing doing something and, and I'd seen these lobster traps there, but I hadn't seen the guy that fishes them. I, I, I said to him, you know, I, I was headed to the line and I kind of slowed down and I saw him pulling a trap up or something and, and I said, hey, are, are, you know, I just put this line here. Is, is that okay? It doesn't affect you in any way. And he's like, nope, as long as you stay out of the deep water, you're fine over there. And I'm like, okay, thanks, you know. Those are the good stories, really, as far as, you know, just the people on the water um, that we're coexisting with. I think, you know, to go back to your question about, like, you know, the landowners, I kind of told you a little bit of a story that was kind of um, a negative story. But everybody else is so great that we come in contact with around this, you know, oyster farm. And Chris just had story after story after story. So the, the owners of Upper Coombs Island, um, Pat and Bruce Meyer, they're our, they're our neighbors. You know, when, before we got started with, we have one line on the north end of that island. Uh, I called them up and, and, um, and, and I think it was, might have been Christmas time or something like that. And my son and I, Max and I went over and we said, we wanted to stop by and just say hi and tell you about um, and they said, yeah, come over. So we went over, like dropped off some Christmas cookies or something. I forgot exactly what it was. Nice. But we went over there and they were like totally supportive of us doing this. You know, we applied, applied for the LPAs. They were granted. You know, they were riparians. We had to notify them. But I mean, before we notified them, we met them in person and talked to them. Um, the owner of Lower Coombs Island, we have a couple of lines on the east side of that. You know, Rick and Sue Nedler, they, they own Lower Coombs. They own a house on, there's actually a couple of houses on there. And then just across the Gurnet Strait, they own a house up on the hill. And we're like the neighborhood watch, honestly. <laughs> I mean, you know, Rick and Sue are great. Uh, there was a mooring that we wanted to have our work float on. And so I went through the Army Corps of Engineers and all this red tape and stuff like that. And I, all I had to do was cut the check. And Rick and Sue said, well, we have three moorings. Why don't you just use one of ours? Oh, and, that's so nice. Yeah. And so our work float hangs off of one of their moorings. It's just like that kind of stuff. I mean, like, you know, Rick's boat broke down once. I towed him to the, the boat landing. And we were constantly helping everybody, each other. You know, Rick's neighbor over in Indian Rest, up on the other side of Gurnet Strait, um, Jim McKinnell, great guy loves oysters you know has has a big you know green hull power yacht and um you know it's his baby and it, it hangs off a mooring right next to our work float 
you know, he's out there with coffee in the morning. You know, we don't turn the radio on until we make sure the volume's low and stuff like that when we're out there working. But, you know, I've helped Jim with all kinds of stuff before. And it's just, he's a neighbor. These types of things are, are constantly happening. Um, another story upriver, there was a kid that I coached in ice hockey and he lived right on the shore by where a couple of our lines up are up off of Thomas Point Beach, um, just south of that. And he asked if he could go on a little tour of the farm and I, I took him out. And, and then later he said, well, one of my neighbors, you know, wanted to call you. I think like, okay. So the guy calls me, he's like, I'm just wondering, you know, is this farm going to get bigger? You know, I see you got two lines there and, and is it just going to just keep getting bigger or what? And, and, and so, I mean, I talked to, the, to this guy on the phone for like half hour, 45 minutes, just answering his questions about everything that he wanted to know. In the beginning of the call, it was like, I could hear fear or something yeah. in his voice. Like the air kind of got let out towards the end of the phone call, just in, in that he was more at ease. And then later, um, I think he called me once to tell me that there was something wrong with the gear, like one of the anchors dragged or something hmm. broke or maybe, you know, I mean, you know, there's, there's times when, you know, big trees go floating down the river and it just, you know, it can just totally shred the gear a little bit. But so he calls me and, um, I was like, great, you know, hop in a boat, zip out there, you know, two hours later, the problem's fixed, whatever it was. And he was right. And I, and so I called him back and, and I said, you know, Ed, um, I really appreciate that. Do you ever want some oysters? Do you eat oysters? <laughs> and he's like, he's like, yeah, I love oysters. And I'm like, well, where's, you know, I could swing by your dock sometime when the tide's you know, right? And um, he says, um, I'm the one with the flagpole. I said, all right, well, I can bring you something. And then he's like, well, I'm going overseas or something like that. And, and literally three weeks later, the guy texted me or called me or something like that. Wanting and, some oysters. Well, yeah. And it was yeah. kind of cool because I'm right there. The lines are what he's looking at. And it turns out there was actually we had a, a ton of market product right in, in those lines at the time. I grabbed like a couple of two, three dozen or something for him. They're going to hear this podcast. And be yeah, like, I'm going to start reporting problems on your farm like daily. <laughs> yeah. He was like, um, and I think I had Max with me and, um, and we scooted over to his dock and he got to meet Max and, and, you know, we handed over some oysters to the guy and he was, he was just totally pleased. And I mean, these are the kind of things that like build community, you know, uh, it dispels any fears around what it is we're trying to do out there. I mean, I think aquaculture can, can get a bad rap in a lot of ways. I mean, all you can do is the best you can yourself. That fear Chris was mentioning is something I hear frequently. When things are uncertain or hard to picture, it can be challenging to feel trusting and accepting of something that you don't know. It's so easy to imagine what a terrestrial farm with cows or vegetables might look like near your house, but with aquaculture, it can oftentimes be less clear. To his point, answering questions openly and honestly with a clear line of communication can really go a long way. Yeah, another positive story is my friend Blake and Lily um, that own, I guess it's called Gurnett Village, but it's like right by the Gurnett Bridge on Route 24 and there's all these little houses and they have a cottage and like, you know, like an Airbnb and they live there and, and you know, they have a big, you know, beefy dock and that's where Clarence works out of. and. Blake and Lily, you know, came out in one of their boats once to the work float and like, what are you guys doing? Like when they first moved there or a little after they first moved there, I was like, we're 
farm and oysters. No way. We love oysters. You know, the rest is history. I mean, Blake is like one of my best friends right now. And that just goes, it transcends the whole oyster farm thing. It's just like, I think it's just, it's kind of cool, you know, to have somebody like that so close by. It's not just oysters. I mean, I, I think there, there's going to be like a municipal shellfish upweller that Blake's going to allow the town to put near his dock or on his dock. Uh, he's somebody that like really supports like working waterfront. I mean, I think when he bought the place in the deed or something like that, Clarence, the, the fisherman, the lobsterman, like came with it. It's like, yeah, you can have this house and you can have this dock and you can have all this, but you got to have Clarence too. And um, it's so funny. My, my coworkers, Trixie and Lily, they're like, we love Clarence, you know? They're like, he's the best. He's so cute, <laughs> you know? And he's just, it's, you know, lobsterman guy, you know, works out of Blake's. It's really the community and, and the whole aquaculture community seems to keep getting smaller. It's like, I mean, we've grown some kelp, you know, a little here on the river. I actually ex experimented with that a couple, couple winters ago and, and the ice just literally just shredded it. Um, we got to relook at that one, but we've done some towards the ocean. My, my son Isaac did it when he was in, in high school, a, a senior, and he like, you know, won the main science fair for his kelp farming, you know? He just had like four LPAs, and I mean, he got help from like Jacqueline Robidoux and all this stuff, and it's just great to be able to test kelp, but I mean, that's something that we're gonna do, um, and we wanna do it on a scale that's profitable, and we wanna do it in a way that's uh, cutting edge, we also want to do it as sustainably as possible, and we want to do it. Uh, we want to tread lightly as we as we do it. Do it. So we were just out the other day, you know, scouting for that or for the one this one location. Came with us, and we brought that whatever that gizmo is called. The, What's it called? Oh, the Aqua Drop. Aqua Drop. Yeah. yeah. Measures current. Some data. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the aquaculture community, like this week coming up, is the seaweed week, and you know, you go to one of these functions and it's like all of a sudden you see this person, that person, and there's all these people that have been doing it forever and we're kind of the new guys. When we started to talk about the aquaculture community in Maine, I thought about how Chris interacts with them as well. We were out on his boat the other day and as we were going down the river to his farm, he was pointing out others' farms. And so I asked him what his relationship with other aquaculturists is like, particularly those also growing on the New Meadows River. Yeah, so I mean, well, for the for the river, um, we do have the New Meadows River Shellfish Co-op that we formed like a couple years ago, and it was like twelve farms. There's probably like ten or eleven farms that in it now, but we literally kind of meet once a month on Zoom. We used to meet in person. Sometimes we meet in person, but we're yeah, we have this co-op where we're trying to connect each other with ideas, uh, resources. You know, it's a diverse group of people who some people are good with like the laws and the legislature some people are good with you know innovation some people are are scientists you know it, it's kind of cool um, and then i think that collective voice is stronger and louder if like we needed to like oppose a bill that didn't make sense there's that kind of um community or that component to the river. So we're still like, you know, scaling the co-op, if you will. I, I mean, like the other farms, like um, Dana and John, they have Iron Island oysters, almost see it from my house, you know, and those guys have borrowed our tumbler on our work float. 
if anybody wants to borrow the equipment, like on a day that we're not out there, you know, we just go out, show them how to use it, show them how we like the place to look when you're done, kind of watch them the first round. And then, you know, if they ask if they wanted to use it at a different time, then we know that they know how to use it. And, and they go out and, and tumble oysters and hose everything off and, and then leave. Yeah, that would create more wear and tear on our gear over, you know, our equipment over time, but they're not doing it all the time. It's like every once in a while, you know, they might want to, and, you know, Jordy with Merritt Island on the other side of the river has borrowed the tumbler. Eric Varney with Mill Cove, he's come over and, you know, used the tumbler. And it's just a great thing to be able to share and kind of commiserate about gear or, you know, if there's a huge muscle set, you know, or we're all talking about like, you know, wow, there's, did you guys see extra green crabs this year? Oh yeah, we did, you know, so we all, we all talk about water temperature and all kinds of things. It's, um, it's definitely a community and in, even downriver, you know, some of the other farms, Dingley Cove, and we're all friends. You know, we all sell to a lot of the same places. Uh, some farms like Winter Point on the other side of the river, um, those guys have been in business forever and they have amazing product and they have leases and they don't need to be part of the co-op. They have, they're like dialed in. They just, they just do their thing and it's, that's fine. Kind of cool that there's farms that are like, you know, like kind of the farms up and down Rascata. I mean, those, mm -hmm. all those farms have been doing it forever. The, the, the new meadows, you know, aside of winter point is kind of like a new thing um, for everybody. Something I've noticed since moving to Maine, which Chris highlighted nicely, is the camaraderie between oyster farmers. While there are a handful of farms, they're all different and doing their own thing, but at the end of the day, it's a Maine oyster, and the togetherness of the oyster growers in this state is something that I find really unique. I was also curious about outdoor recreators like kayakers or paddleboarders on the New Meadows River, and if they get questions from those just paddling through. Yeah, it was this thing that the co-op kind of got going called um, Float the New Meadows. And it was like, yeah, all the oyster farms will be open on this day from this time to this time. And there, last year, there was a lot of people um, that came out. And our work float had boats all around it. People would come out in their boats, kayaks, and pull up and, you know, you know get oysters and stuff like that. We have people all the time, you know, like upriver. I've had, like a kayak group come by when I was working on the line and, you know, we just like shut the motor off and clip into the line and, and, you know, there's kayaks all over the place and we're just, they're just asking questions and we're just talking to them and telling them what we're doing. I've had, I've had them come to the work float and we have a couple lines that are really close to our work float. You know, they, they say, what are you doing? Where do you grow them? And, you know, we just point over to the lines and say, yeah, you, Go ahead and paddle over there you can paddle in between the cages and um and check it out you know you can see the oysters down in the cages if the cages aren't too fouled up with you know biofouling and stuff um, yeah we get and then like so like yeah the recreational boating scene is definitely um we mix with that one of the things about the the, the fishermen that are fishing for striped bass is kind of cool because you'll see them they'll go over and they'll cast around the our lines and the stripers will come through and um you know i've seen the the, the striper fishermen you know hook up uh you know with with striped bass um around our gear and it's pretty cool because um you know they're just going around fishing trying to find where they are and oh you know the other thing we had once was um 
the pogies, the, so the pogie fish, um, the, the lobstermen will fish for pogies for bait. And um, certain time of year, I'm not too sure exactly the laws and stuff like that, but a lot of these big boats will come up the river with, you know, big nets and, and guys and separate boats that they use for, for catching the pogies. And, and sometimes, you know, you, you know, if seals are around, there's probably pogies around. One of, the, one of these times there was a guy from one of those pogey fishing outfits that, that came over with his boat to the work float. And he says, uh, how's the oyster farming going? And I'm like, not bad, you know, and blah, blah, blah. I'm just chumming with the guy. And, and, uh, and he says, well, have you seen any pogies around here? You know, and I was like, well, well, yeah, you know, I mean, the seals were over there, you know, uh, rounding them up against that muscle bar, you know? Okay, <laughs> thanks. We'll talk to you later. You know, I mean, that's great. You know, I, I mean, to be approached, you know, by someone else on the water in yeah. a positive way. I mean, that's just great, you know, that he felt comfortable to do that. I, I, I feel really comfortable sharing with other people on the water. I think those last stories really speak for themselves on the work that Furta Farms has put in to community engagement to be so approachable for others working on the water in different ways. And when I mentioned this to Chris, it jogged another story in his head about scientists at the University of Maine reaching out with the hopes of doing some experiments on his farm. That makes me think about like science and, um, you know, Dr. Rawson, uh, Paul Rawson from UMaine, our first year was just kind of the first year of starting an oyster farm. The second year, I guess it was the second year, Dr. Rawson reached out to us from UMaine and like, hey, can I do a study on, and I can't remember which year it was and what to what, but like one year they did a, a glycogen study. The next year they did a, like a growth study or something like that. And then the next year they did a genetics, you know? And so it's kind of funny cause like UMaine showing up here with like all kinds of gizmos for measuring, you know, chlorophyll and turbidity and salinity refractometer and you know we're just farming man we don't know how to use that stuff but <laughs> there's stuff you know in a dry bag up underneath the bow and we're supposed to keep data you know i mean the scientists are really good about it you know so we would do our best to keep some data but yeah they would come and like and we would set them up on the picnic table on the screen porch here and they're out there like measuring oysters and you know it with calipers and you know, calling out numbers to each other and recording stuff in the book. And then we go and we pick them up and we take their animals back out and put them in the special cage where they keep them. You know, or they're taking, you know, oysters up and freezing them and then putting them in a blender and then putting them in some <laughs> electron microscope and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And, and it's like, I mean, the science is great. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I'm just a grower. But if the scientists want to come out and do a study, then we have to make time for them. And so we do, and it's kind of cool. Um, we actually even got paid, I think, last last time when they came out. They gave us a little, you know, money was trickling in, which is pretty cool, <laughs> you know? There's yeah. a spider that joined us. Oh, really? Cool. Where is he? <laughs> is he a big one? I don't know. Is he gone? Yeah, he's no. on the couch now. Nice. Um, but that yeah. really disrupted the flow. <laughs> <laughs> Chris and his really great five-panel oyster hat is definitely a familiar face at shucking gigs, which is how I actually met him. And so I asked about these gigs and how it further helps him connect to his community, build new relationships, and strengthen existing ones. So the shucking gigs are great, I think. Um, there is one locally that happens. It's called Whole Brooks on the Half Shell. Um, it happens down in Cundy's Harbor. Um, the Whole Brooks... 
Holbrook Community Foundation is like this group of people that um, support aquaculture, support oyster farming, and support the New Meadows River Shellfish Co-op. And um, they, you know, allow us to use the Holbrook's Wharf to do a shucking gig down there. And so the, all, like not all the farms, but most of the farms from the co-op go down and, and bring oysters and shuck. And it's usually in the fall when the oysters are really plump and, and tasty and full of glycogen getting ready for the winter. And I think it's great to get our oysters out into the world because they're great. They're great, but you can't go wrong growing oysters in Maine. It's just like, it's like anywhere you go, you know, you put these oysters in the water and grow them up to the market size and they're great. And, and they do taste different, you know, from one place to another, but they're all great. They're so spoiled. My God, eat oysters. Yeah, they're, eat they're, oysters. Yeah, they're good for you. At the end of our time, I asked Chris if there were any last parting words of wisdom that he had for people out there working on the water, and here's what he had to say. If you plan to work on the water, just be cognizant that there's all these different things that are going on in and on and around the water that you have to just be careful of and try to respect. And one more thing. And well, I mean, you were asking if there's anything else I wanted to say, but it, I mean, honestly, do you, do you know what I really got to say? I just, I just thinking of something real quick here. Go for it. Shout out to the shuckers. They just, they just do a, a great job. I'm just saying, shout out to the shuckers. That's all I got to say. But anyway, I think that's it. We have to stop recording now because there's maybe clams that are right here. Let's go. Gotta go get some clams. Bye. Ha, ha, ha.